48K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Todd Harding. Tonight's headlines. The LegCo elections are postponed for a year. Carrie Lam says Beijing will be asked how to fill the vacuum the move creates. And the Director of Public Prosecutions, David Leung, resigns, citing differences with the Justice Secretary. Elections for the Legislative Council, originally slated for September, will be postponed for a year. The Chief Executive, Carrie Lam, says the city is facing a dire situation battling the coronavirus pandemic and holding the polls would be hugely risky. Richard Pine reports. The next LegCo elections will be held on September 5th, 2021. Chief Executive Carrie Lam says the decision to postpone this year's polls was essential as she had to ensure both the fairness of the elections and public safety. Mrs Lam says there were absolutely no political considerations in making the decision. It is purely on the basis of protecting the health and safety of the Hong Kong people and to ensure that the elections are held in a fair and open manner. She says coronavirus-mandated restrictions meant the usual campaigning wouldn't be able to go ahead. Voters currently outside the SAR may not have been able to return to cast their ballots, and elderly people may have decided that the risk of voting was too great. The emergency regulations ordinance has been invoked to postpone the election, but the mainland's being consulted on how to fill the legislative vacuum that has been created. A logical solution will be what is uh, stated in Section 11, of the uh, Legislative Council ordinance for emergency meetings, i.e. to extend the term of the six-term Legislative Council by one year. But this is my personal view as a chief executive, is not the content of the decision to be made by the National People's Congress Standing Committee. Officials have also clarified that the next LegCo elections will be a completely new one, so prospective candidates who have been disqualified will be able to step forward as candidates again. DAB Chairwoman Starry Lee says she backs the move to postpone the polls. We now want to concentrate on our effort and attention to fighting against the coronavirus. Well, how to assess the coming political situation and all these things. I think we've still got a lot of time, right? And, you know, all these things will change uh, from time to time. Council front lawmaker Claudia Moe rejects Carrie Lam's claim that her decision to postpone the polls was based purely on public health considerations. The fact that she would need to use some archaic emergency law and would need to get the endorsement from her big Beijing boss tells you the whole thing is so politically calculated. The whole thing is just so sordid. The Director of Public Prosecutions, David Leung, has resigned, saying he couldn't see eye-to-eye with Justice Secretary Theresa Cheng. He also says he's been sidelined when it comes to the new national security law. Maggie Ho reports. In an email to colleagues, Mr Leung says he couldn't agree with the Justice Secretary on the running of the Prosecution Division and is leaving his post at the end of the year. He says he has enjoyed every day of his 25 years as a prosecutor, but it's now time for the Secretary to find a new Director of Public Prosecutions. Mr Leung also makes it clear that he has not been involved in matters relating to the national security law, seeing his assistance 
attendance and participation was not required. Justice Secretary Teresa Chang was asked about the resignation, as she appeared alongside Chief Executive Carrie Lam at a press briefing on postponing the LegCo elections. I'll just briefly reply. Indeed, um, the DPP has uh, informed me of his uh, intention to leave on a particular date, but I think in all fairness, we should allow him to make a proper statement um, at an appropriate time rather than to comment on this now when we are looking at a more important matter. Mr. Leung has been Director of Public Prosecutions since December 2017. The Vice Chairwoman of the Bar Association, Anita Yip, says she hopes the Justice Secretary will find a suitable successor for Mr. Leung. We have not been told the reason, at least not in public, for the resignation of the Director of Public Prosecution. But the DPP is a very important post because um, he's supposed to be in charge of all the public prosecution in Hong Kong. And I do expect that perhaps the Secretary for Justice may give an explanation or perhaps uh, Mr. Lung himself will explain to the public why he's leaving the office. You're listening to RTHK. The time is coming up to five minutes past 11. The Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office says Beijing is sending personnel to the SAR to help carry out mass coronavirus tests. It says the central government will also help Hong Kong speed up the construction of quarantine and treatment centres. The office says the moves are in response to a request from the Carrie Lam administration for help with reining in the COVID-19 outbreaks here. The authorities have confirmed media reports that a woman who has caught COVID-19 left her home in Homantin while waiting to be admitted to hospital. The Centre for Health Protection says the 37-year-old told officials that she went out to buy something to prepare for her hospital stay. Dr Chuang Shuk Kwan says the woman didn't violate any law as authorities had not yet issued her with an isolation order. Probably because of the recent delay in, in transporting them to the hospital. Some of them, um, maybe one or two cases went out. According to our information, she went out to buy something to prepare for admission to the hospital. So we'll advise um, patients who are confirmed to stay at home and, and wait for the transport to the hospital. The centre has reported 121 new coronavirus infections, all but three are local cases. It's the tenth straight day that the number of new infections is in the triple digits. Dr Trung says while the figures are not coming down, they're not rising uncontrollably either. She says some of the anti-epidemic measures introduced by the government are working, but they might not be as effective as is expected. The situation is still evolving. It's very difficult to say whether it is out of control or under control. At least it is not really under control. But if it is out of control, the, the number of cases will rise very, very high. So I think some of the strategies may be working, but not as what uh, we have expected. The outgoing chairman of the Hong Kong Association of the Heads of Secondary Schools has spoken out against plans by the authorities to tighten the monitoring of local schools. Teddy Tang says worries about pro-independence sentiment on campus are overblown and he urges his colleagues to continue to ensure a free and open environment in schools. Maggie Ho has more. Teddy Tang retires in about a month after 25 years as a headmaster. 
He told RTHK that according to his personal experience, there isn't as much support for Hong Kong independence or localist ideas among school children as some may think. Only a small fraction are interested in current affairs, he said. But Mr. Tang says misunderstandings have led to calls for more supervision of schools, including proposals to install surveillance cameras in classrooms. He said such ideas would make students nervous and make it impossible for them to trust their teachers. He said educators must try their best to safeguard their autonomy and maintain a free and open environment in schools so students would not hesitate to share their true feelings with teachers. Mr. Tang's final year as an educator was one of the most challenging ever, with many students arrested amid months of anti-government protest. Throughout, he tried to gain a better understanding of what students and protesters were thinking by frequently visiting the popular online forum LIHKG. <laughs> Before, we thought being a leftist is like being an activist. But when I read LIHKG, for young people, we might establishment and an obstruction to development, he said. Mr. Tang also got personally involved. He was one of the school principals who, along with teachers and social workers, went to the Hong Kong campus of Polytechnic University last November after hundreds of people were boxed in by police and persuaded 300 underage students to leave. He urged officials to gain a better understanding of students via direct and frank exchanges instead of just asking head teachers what their students are thinking. The government has begun a recruitment process for the post of Director of Broadcasting. As Priscilla Ng reports, this means RTHK's current chief, Leung Ka Wing, will leave the position when his three-year contract expires in August next year. Leung Ka Wing himself did not speak to the press, but RTHK's public relations chief, Amen Ng, confirmed the news by quoting the 67-year-old Director of Broadcasting as saying that he doesn't want to be working when he's 70. In a statement, the administration says recruitment advertisements have been published in newspapers and posted on the government website, and applications should be submitted by August the 28th. The chairman of RTHK's board of advisors, Eugene Chan, says he hopes the new director of broadcasting will continue to uphold the RTHK charter and abide by the law while maintaining the station's editorial independence. He says he believes Mr. Lung has done his best amid the current pandemic and political situation. During a meeting with the RTHK management team, Mr. Chen also said Mr. Lung had reacted positively to the board's comments, including the need to produce programs to promote and educate the public on the new national security law. RTHK being the only public broadcaster in Hong Kong has the obligation or the responsibility to support the Hong Kong SAR government in doing the job. And uh, the director, being the chief editor, when he leads the rest of the team, he should be very careful and be diligent, and not to mention that if he finds any area that he could add into the producer's guidelines that will help future generations of Hong- uh, RTXK colleagues. So that's exactly what we have said to the director. 
The adviser added that the station will also look into a complaint by pro-Beijing lawmaker Junius Ho, who has accused an RTHK reporter of conducting a biased and incomprehensive interview with him on the Hong Kong Connection program regarding the July 21st Yunlong attacks. The public broadcaster is currently the subject of a government-led management review following a series of controversies over its programs, which have come under fire for allegedly being biased and anti-police. Taiwan says it will hold a state funeral for former President Li Tanghui, who died yesterday in a Taipei hospital aged 97. World leaders have sent their condolences, while mainland media have branded Mr Li a national sinner and traitor. Tom McLinden has details. Taipei says Vice President William Lai will lead a committee to organise Mr Lee's funeral and the government's ordered flags to fly at half-mast across the island. A venue will be set up in Taipei for the public to pay their respects. The presidential office says it wants to show its respect for Mr Lee, who ushered in Taiwan's new era of democracy and pluralism. World leaders have offered condolences with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe praising Mr Lee for laying Taiwan's foundation for liberty as well as boosting Japan-Taiwan relations. US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo called Mr Lee a crucial player in transforming Taiwan into a beacon of democracy and said the US will honour his legacy by continuing to strengthen its bond with Taiwan. In Beijing, the Taiwan Affairs Office responded to Mr Lee's death by saying independence for the island is a dead end and national unification is unstoppable. The state-backed Global Times labelled Mr Lee a traitor, saying his death is definitely not sad news to most people on the mainland and his image as a national sinner will never be changed in the history of China. Vietnam has confirmed its first death of a patient who had been diagnosed with the coronavirus. State media says an elderly man who tested positive has died in the city of Da Nang. The country has been praised for its pandemic countermeasures, but is being hit by new outbreaks in certain areas after three months without any new infections. Da Nang is now under a partial lockdown. Sports news now, football, and with a look ahead to this weekend's FA Cup final, here's the BBC's Rob Schofield. The 139th FA Cup final is being played this Saturday with 13-time winners Arsenal against Chelsea, who've lifted the trophy eight times. Many thought this behind-closed-doors final would be a Manchester derby, but both City and United slipped up in their semi-finals. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang took his tally to beyond the 25 mark to give Mikel Arteta a memorable win over his old mentor Pep Guardiola, while David De Gea's goalkeeping errors handed Chelsea the momentum in their tie. Frank Lampard's Blues looks slightly further along their rebuilding journey. The recruitment of two of Europe's brightest young forwards, Timo Werner and Hakim Ziyech, have them looking dangerous for next campaign. But the Gunners have shown in one-off games this season they have the quality, albeit rarely the consistency. Defensively, these two sides can be found wanting. It could be a high-scoring final, but an intriguing one for both head coaches. A huge day for Arteta and Lampard in their debut seasons in the top flight. Both have shown impressive game management this year. Intelligence, tactical flexibility and swift learning has characterised both men. They've lifted this trophy as players for the clubs they now manage, but can they do it from the sidelines? The BBC's Rob Schofield with that preview. And now a reminder of our top stories tonight. The LegCo elections are postponed for a year. Carrie Lam says Beijing will be asked how to fill the vacuum the move creates. And the Director of Public Prosecutions, David Leung, resigns, citing differences with Justice Secretary Theresa Cheng. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3 it's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's News Wrap programme. 
Restaurants have started dining services again after being banned for just two days. The government made a U-turn on the issue yesterday. Wendy Wong has more. At a Chinese restaurant in Changsha Wan, a customer named Wong welcomed the resumption of dining services at restaurants, although he's worried about the coronavirus situation. He says he'll be careful and put a mask on when he's not eating. He says he's glad to be back as he's used to going yamcha every morning. Another customer says people should not be overworried about the virus. Even when she couldn't go to restaurants, she still had to go out for groceries, she says, so it didn't make much difference. A manager of the restaurant says the U-turn on the daytime dining in ban was sudden and the situation is chaotic. He says they didn't have enough time to restock supplies. He says the financial situation for the restaurants is still poor because they still can't let people sit inside in the evenings and the landlord won't cut the rent. The catering industry's legislator Tommy Jung is urging the government to further relax pandemic restrictions on restaurants to allow them to take in dinner customers. Mr Jung, who's also a member of Exco and chairs the Liberal Party, told RTHK that that amount of business at the moment won't even cover the rent for many restaurants. Doing the lunch business with four people per table, doing half a seating, it's going to give us about 25%. Uh, of our uh, uh, what we would do normally in business. The arithmetic is very simple. You close off our nights, that's half gone. You close off half the seating and the lunch, that's another half, okay? Technically, the dinner business per capita spending is higher. So I would roughly figure for the bigger restaurants, you would see actually only 20%. Of sales now, even if you open back up the lunch business at the morning uh, breakfast business, we're going to see only 20%, 25% of our business. Uh, that won't be enough to cover rent, let alone salary, let alone utilities, and also the food cost. Mm. So basically, we need the government to open up the night business too. Uh, they could slowly open it up to like two, again, same as lunch, but do it at night so people can go out for two for dinner, you know, at the uh, same half seating and all that. That will probably bring back another 20, 25%. I guess that's uh, difficult, though, at the moment with, you know, cases of COVID-19 at a record high again yesterday. I know, but look at it. It doesn't come from us. Okay. It is not because people go out to uh, 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 dinner or to lunches. The COVID-19 that we got are people who carried it and came to our restaurants three weeks ago. Now you see one or two going, coming from the restaurant group. But the whole point of the matter is you force people uh, to take higher risk. Okay, same thing with closing down the restaurant. Eating in our restaurant may be... 1,000, uh, 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 1 to 1,000 uh, percent uh, risk. You force them out to eat, you know, in the, in the sun or in the rain near a sewage, you're going to increase the risk tenfold, a hundredfold. 
The vice president of Beijing's top think tank on Hong Kong has conceded that the central government was behind the mass banning of localist and pro-democracy figures from standing in the LegCo elections. Professor Lao Su Kai says Xi Jinping's administration was well aware that the sheer number of disqualifications would lead to widespread international condemnation and perhaps even more sanctions from the West. But he told Priscilla Ng that Beijing is taking matters into its own hands because of ever-worsening Sino-US ties. That simply reflects the uh, serious international situation between the uh, United States and China and the, the fact that the, the, uh, the Hong Kong opposition are proceeding uh, in a very radical manner and the fact that uh, there is a collusion between external and internal hostile forces. So that prompts Beijing into doing something to prevent the uh, hostile forces from taking over Alaska and to make sure that the national security is, is safeguarded. So this time, the Hong Kong election, in more than just local matter, it has to do with national matter, particularly national security. And, and that's why I think uh, the Beijing Hong Kong government uh, are taking a very uh, uh, cautious and precautionary approach. But even people with very, very moderate views like, you know, Kenneth Leung was banned. And I mean, is there still meaningful democracy in Hong Kong if that's the case? From one, one country to some point of view, one of the major uh, requirements for any person who participates uh, in uh, Hong Kong politics, particularly becoming a national member, that they must, have, they must not do anything uh, to, in, in, in terms of colluding with foreign powers to, to threaten China's national security. And I, I would say that uh, in the past, this factor, that is whether there's collusion between uh, Hong Kong politicians and, and uh, foreign powers, was not that important, I considered it before. Uh, but uh, this time, I would, I would say that after uh, the, the, the year-long turmoil in Hong Kong and after the deteriorating relationship between United States and China, this factor, whether a, a politician has linkages with uh, hostile foreign powers, becomes important. Now, what does this mass ban mean for social sentiment? Because after all, you know, 600,000 people did come out to participate in the pandemic's primaries. Well, obviously, they, they won't be happy about it. But uh, I don't think they would do anything too drastic to, to, to launch the protests or launch the uh, unhappiness. But even so, that would not deter Beijing and Hong Kong government from uh, pursuing a uh, policy of protection, protecting national security. But... Uh, some kind of conflict, some kind of collision uh, between people who support the uh, opposition and those people who support the government and Beijing as well as Beijing and government themselves. I think that is unavoidable, but I don't expect large-scale protests to come to happen in Hong Kong because a lot of people understand that uh, whatever they do, they will not change Beijing's determination to protect national security. At the same time, given the, the, the serious economic situation in Hong Kong and the uh, uncontrollable pandemic, uh, it is quite difficult for large-scale protest movement to, 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 to get organized. So at the end of the day, do you have an estimation of how many you know, pro-democracy members will actually be allowed to participate in this? Well, I, 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 I don't know, mm-hmm. because it depends how much, um, how, how long, how, how far the government will to go. But if we at the, uh, the the reason why the twelve people are disqualified, and we apply this uh, criteria to other candidates, we saw in 
several more people to get disqualified. A lot of those who have been disqualified say that these criteria is actually very arbitrary and, you know, the red line could be moved all over the place. Uh, not necessarily, because when you look back at what Deng Xiaoping, the national leader who charted the one, uh, one country, two system for, for Hong Kong, that is, he said very clearly that Hong Kong had to be run by the patriots. And the, and the criteria for the patriots are very simple. That the state should support the one country, two systems uh, policy of Beijing. And that they would not do anything detrimental to the interests of the country. But of course, implying that they should not invite foreign power to interfere in Hong Kong affairs. Now, if these are the criteria laid down by the uh, policymaker, for one country, two systems. So these criteria set down by governments seem to be rather reasonable. One of the medical experts helping to set up the 500-bed pandemic hospital in Asia World Expo admits it could be filled up in just a week or two. But Professor Ivan Hong, an assistant dean of medicine at the University of Hong Kong, told RTHK that that facility can be quickly expanded. Currently we're doing two things. First of all, we are uh, in the hospital. situation is, is improving. Uh, we are able to, with uh, the patient now turning negative in the uh, viral test, and also that they are developing, or they have to be uh, now developing antibody, they will be discharged uh, as soon as possible to, to vacant the beds uh, for, for further patients who have not received care yet. Uh, and, and the other thing, of course, is that we are using the Asia World Expo to, to triage our patients so that we're doing things in both fronts. Uh, as well as sending patients to the to the CIF, to the camp. So uh, hopefully by this kind of measures, we are able to to clear uh, or, and to send all the patients to either for triage or to the hospitals. Nevertheless, with this kind of rate, if every day we're having more, more than 100 confirmed cases for more than like, you know, two weeks, then perhaps the Asia World Expo bed will also be, uh, be fully occupied. We're also now preparing for, if the situation got worse, then we will have further beds available uh, in the so-called, uh, in, in, in other uh, sites in the Asia Expos uh, with similar uh, beds that we can offer perhaps another three, 400 beds. Local architects, surveyors and planners have come up with proposals on how the government can improve city planning in the wake of the coronavirus. They say Hong Kong can be designed to be more resilient and flexible in case another pandemic on the same scale hits the city in the future. Corinne Chan, the vice president of the Institute of Architects, says various things can be considered, from more toilets in large venues to making it easy to repurpose public spaces. She spoke to Candice Wong. We will have epidemic in the future. And uh, can we be flexible in our design right now? For example, when we design the uh, exhibition hall, uh, the problem is we haven't planned for toilets. So even we have the space, drainage is not supporting. We need to have separate, you know, toilets. And uh, we need to, the air vent, you know. So in the future, maybe we plan school or whatever. Some, some space, public space, that we can transform it. You know, easily. We plan already. Like in the Nordic country, they plan flooding. So in some building, they have a very big basement because they are planning for flooding. So is there something that we can do? We plan ahead to face the challenges we might meet. So I think design for resilience, design for transformation, flexibility is very important. And design for a city that can breathe.
You know, now our, our problem with our city is high density. And if we keep building, building, building without caring for the way that we breathe, then it's like a person. The person will die. I heard you mentioned that Hong Kong did have some policy change after having SARS in 2003, especially on the landscape or uh, city planning. Did we learn any lesson from that? And how can we apply now that we have COVID-19? In my presentation, actually, I gave the example of Healthy City uh, Initiative, started with the medical professionals. And, uh, and they did a great job. They promote healthy city, you know, to the community. But I think what that what was missing at that time is uh, uh, there was not many of the uh, building professionals in, in that process. There was the review in the building regulations. Even building department had some change. In 2005, they actually had a, a good paper, you know, like how regulations can support sustainable uh, development. But uh, I would say at that time, there wasn't that awareness that, oh, planning and architecture really is very important, you know, to contribute to the health of the city. And uh, and I think the difference of this time is there is a heightened awareness that we, we actually contribute, you know, in a very significant way. And I think this time together with the planners and the architects and the urban designers and landscape architects, we will come up with some consolidated directions, like what's important. And then we'll talk with the government. What's the implication? I mean, what's the implementation? There is no body, no centralized body, no force, no authority, and also no policy support. It won't happen. In terms of the healthcare aspect, what should be considered when the government plans for a district or a city? Do they need to set up more community healthcare services or how do you think about that? I think the government should uh, think about the health of uh, people and the environment. Uh, for people, it's not just physical, but also mental, psychological. So our city should be planned for these two important directions, not just economy. I think our government has been designing out of uh, the mindset that is for economic growth. As you can tell, like we will have more developments, we'll have more business and we'll have more finance. They all look at the, you know, the economic as the, as the ultimate goal. And I think that's those stories were part of the Newswrap program, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening.
Only the Lonely, um, written by Roy Orbison, Joe Melson, and Orbison's recording of the song there uh, was the first major hit for Roy Orbison in uh, in May of 1960. A little bit of uh, Elvis Presley now, and um, the interesting fact here is uh, this uh, particular tune uh, was not originally written for Elvis. It was uh, uh, Daryl Glenn. Uh, and uh, it came out in uh, June 1953. But it was Elvis who uh, who uh, really made it his own in uh, in the year uh, 1965. You saw me crying in the chapel The tears I shed were tears of joy I know the meaning of now I'm happy with more Just a plain and simple chat Get down on 